a blink of an eye. Life stories of trauma, loss, awakenings, and epiphanies, beginning with one mom's journal entries recorded in real time of a catastrophic diving accident rendering her teenage son paralyzed from the neck down, and the courageous fight to save his life. Told through unedited text and journal entries and inspiring guest interviews, Blink of an Eye will take you on a powerful journey of advocacy and hope and an unvarnished look at the true nature of our relationships and interconnectedness in the face of an event that changes everything. Life can change in the blink of an eye. August 5th, 2015 was a very long day and it wasn't even over yet, but at least... I knew I was at Atlantic Care Hospital in Atlantic City. I knew Archer had been in a bad accident. I knew I had seen him and talked with him. I knew he was now in surgery. I was in tunnel vision to pray. I was crystal clear that I needed God on my side. And I instinctively knew I needed others too. And I needed them to pray. I remember thinking that if we all prayed together and prayed hard enough with intensity, the surgery would go well and Archer would be restored to how he was before the accident. 10.59 p.m. I texted Billy, my children, my brothers and sisters, my sister-in-law, my brother-in-law, all their children, and close friends who had been texting me as well as a few other friends who lived in other states whom I was very close with, and I added some close professional colleagues too. I texted, Archer is having surgery. Please pray very hard. It was the most natural thing for me to do to send those texts to these people. I knew I was scared, and these were my go-to people. You know the kind of folks in your life that when you connect with them, you just feel better. Well, that's how it was for me. But you know, asking them to pray? Well, I really had no idea of whether or not some of my closest friends or even extended family prayed. I look back on the hours and hours of time I've spent with people I like a lot, good people. It's funny, you know, raising our five kids, I've spent many seasons of time with wonderful people on the sidelines of many sports fields, at all weekend soccer and lacrosse tournaments, sitting around for hours between games, snacking, talking, and our folding chairs under tents and hours of volunteering and talking about the many things our kids got us involved with, and then really hours of time over the years in conversation at business breakfasts and catch-up girlfriend lunches. God wasn't really talked about. I mean, there may have been the casual, oh, thank God, or thank God, or oh, my God, or the very casual OMG. What does that even mean? I mean, I can hear my own mother now telling me when I was in middle school and I said about every other sentence, oh my God, oh my God. And on occasion, oh God. And she'd yell, Louise, never take the Lord's name in vain. (laughs) To this day, I still catch myself and have to ask, 
if it was in vain or if I was really calling on the Lord. And when it's in vain, I try not to. My mom taught me a lot of things. Your mom probably did too. Yes, for me as an adult, the more I'm thinking about God right now with you and the night of August the 5th is that there were some people with whom I had entered into deep discussions over the years about Catholicism, like my Order of Malta friends, and about what I believed about God. But talking to others about what I believed about God or what they believed or didn't believe, it was just not one of those things I did regularly with anyone, really, my friends or even my close friends or close business colleagues, even my siblings. But there I was, August the 5th, 2015. My family was in deep trouble. I knew something very bad had just happened. I could feel our world turning upside down. A broken neck. What did that mean? In truth, I thought on the one hand, if I prayed hard enough, God would put Archer back to how he was before 3.45 p.m. that day. We just had to get through this. But on the other hand, I was acutely aware that my prayer to make it all as it was was really my will being placed over God's. But surely it was God's will that Archer be okay and be restored to how he was. As part of the look back at text messages, there was one sent at 4.21 p.m. to me. I guess while I was driving, lost. I definitely have no memory of it. It was from a young man at the beach club, Chance Lofman, the son of my dear friend Dory, who was headed back to College of Charleston that summer, where I had good friends, and he and I had traded phone numbers so I could connect him. I was born in Charleston. He texted, when they left, he was talking, breathing, and gaining feeling. I have no memory of that text, but at 6.29 p.m., I had forwarded it to Billy, and Billy replied, Archer will want his phone when he wakes up. It was just all so surreal. I'd been on my own spiritual path for a number of years, awakening to the notion of surrender so I could be more open to whatever comes. I was becoming aware of just how much I placed my own will over God's in my life. I mean, all my life I've prayed, ever since I can remember, at four, five, six years old, dear God, help my mommy stop crying. Help bring my daddy home to me. Help me stop having that bad dream. And on into grade school. Dear God, help Jimmy Donut's broken leg get better. Help the starving children in Africa. Help our dog George not eat the chickens. And into middle school. Dear God, help Santa bring me a camera. Help Kurt Reckner like Noreen Kane. Help me do well on my math test. Help Mrs. Donath to not make fun of me. Help those girls not be so mean to each other. 
and on into high school. Dear God, help my mom get money to pay the bills. Help me not get caught leaving school early. Help Dan Dondonville not be hurt when I break up with him. Help me get into the University of Virginia. Help world peace. You name it, I prayed for it. It was not until years later, when I was pregnant with my first child, that my prayer of, dear God, help me have a healthy baby. Oh, please, Lord, bring me a healthy baby. Had an add-on. Or whatever is your will, Lord. Whew, that was hard to even think about, let alone roll off my lips in my prayers, because it meant I might not get what I want. It also meant that something very precious to me, being a mother, well, that I might get something I wasn't able to do. That scared me to my core. As I look back, it really was my pregnancy with our daughter Paula when I wanted something so very badly, a baby, a healthy baby, and I was scared to death of a baby that might be disabled. And I began to end my prayers with, help me to accept, Lord, whatever you give me. I think my faith and relationship with God began to change around that time. It deepened, really, as I tried to surrender and really trust in God, in something larger than I, much larger. But this prayer stuff, it could be hard, at least hard for me. But my Aunt Margie had always said, keep talking to God. And my mom had always said, God only gives you what you can handle. The problem was, I knew I was strong. So I secretly wondered whether God would not give me a healthy baby because he thought I could handle it. Oh, I was scared to death because I knew I couldn't, and I prayed hard. He gave me a beautiful, perfect in every way baby, our daughter Paula. But I had realized I wasn't as strong as I thought I was. I had been so scared. And what I really needed was God's help for whatever came my way. So it was then in all my relief and joy that I began to think, you know, God doesn't give us trouble. He helps us through it. I had four more beautiful, perfect baby boys after that. I was so grateful. Over the many years of marriage and parenting thereafter, my daily prayer to God had become, Lord, please help me to hear your voice. I was still asking God for things all the time, but I really tried to listen. And it wasn't easy because I'm busy and I have a very active mind. But back to the night of August the 5th, in that hospital, in that hallway, I was so out of my mind. And what I wanted more than anything in the whole world, what was on my lips with every prayer, was please, Lord, please let us hear that surgeon come back and tell us everything was successful. 
His neck will heal and Archer will be fine. I didn't even know the name of his surgeon and it definitely hadn't crossed my mind that night to ask. As part of our look back, Billy told me it was he who had authorized the signing of all the hospital forms. And I said, oh, you were there? He said, no, sweetheart, over the phone. But you know, when he said that, yes, I do remember. I remember his being on the other end of my phone when I was sitting with a nurse and I was in one of those small rooms. I remember his voice. I remember, I remember that. Oh, I remember the nurse's face. She was looking at me so pitifully and I felt she was really frustrated with me. I remember her saying, Mrs. Semft, we cannot treat your son. We need your consent. I'm his mother. I remember thinking, don't you understand anything, lady? She responded, but you can't tell me your address or his date of birth. It was true. I couldn't recall those things. I had no ability to fill out forms or even sign my name. I recall it was a little combative between us. And I begged, just show me, just show me, show me what I'm supposed to do. And I think I drew a thin line on the form, but she would not accept it. I think it was then that I called Billy. I, I mean, I do recall exactly what happened. I said to that nurse, here, this is Billy. He'll tell you what you need. And I recall holding the phone up and Billy identifying himself as my husband and Archer's father. And she telling Billy that they couldn't take an authorization over the phone. I recall the feeling I had when I heard Billy's voice and I felt his steadiness. He told the nurse, I am authorizing that my wife, Louise Phipps Semft, who is Archer Semp's mother, who is sitting there with you, is giving her consent for surgery. Oh, I remember. Billy gets it. Oh, thank you, my darling. I remember thinking, I love you, Billy, so much. I don't remember waiting for surgery that was to last two and a half hours. I've had to ask and interview my own children for when they even arrived, as I have no memory of anyone being there. I was in tunnel vision. Here's a portion of my interview with my son, Dewey Semt, 24 years old, who works as a funds accountant for an investment firm in Boston. He was 19 at the time and in college. I'll post the rest of it later. Honestly, I, I remember we had to like like we had to deal with like your hysteria at the same time as because basically archer was in like the doctor's hands but at that point you were in our hands and we were and you had like blacked out and i remember that was like the first night maybe and you they wanted to admit you to the hospital for like i don't know what it was but and that's what I remember the first night was, I guess, less Archer and more like mom at that point, just like 
and that also was like a weird experience like reliable strong mom broken down into like a stress-induced panic attack I guess yeah that was weird for me seeing you like that I don't like hold it against you or anything it was just it was just like crazy that that happened I guess yeah and I think it was because normally like you kind of take charge and you're always like making things happen and you're always very in control with important things in our lives and I guess it just was a little too much at that point I think it must be so hard on children seeing a parent in shock. They're trying to make sense of their parent as the parent is trying to make sense of the shocking news. Oh, trauma. It has so many layers and angles. Maybe we can explore some of those in future episodes. I think you had gone out looking for like the chapel or something. Right. I think think that was why you were wandering the halls. Yeah. Exactly right. Yeah. Yes, I was looking for a chapel. I was in tunnel vision to find one. Tunnel vision. You know, this tunnel vision experience, it's a weird thing that happens to you. And I think it's part of the experience of trauma or a huge shock, at least for some people. You get bad news, I mean, really horrific news of a bad accident or or an event or a loss. It has to be a loss of something you love so much and you need so much, like for your life, for your identity, for your survival. And you just click into tunnel vision. You're searching for something positive. For me, my everything is Billy and my children. They are the most precious thing in my life. I was helpless. I was out of control. And it was God who was going to be positive in my life. Have you ever experienced a time when you suddenly learned, or maybe it was an accident or an event, that major harm had befallen someone or something really dear and precious to you? It comes without warning, and it's huge. And it's not just any bad or sad news. It's catastrophic news. I hope you haven't, actually. But that's when tunnel vision happens. If you have experienced tunnel vision, you know exactly what I'm talking about when you're so focused on something sharp focus, scanning until you lock on for anything positive that will make your loved one all right again. I think it's driven by just raw emotion. And I needed to find a chapel. I needed to be close to God. Where's the chapel? Not where is everyone or how much longer or who's hungry. Nope. Tunnel vision. It's from another brain. It's why others might think you're a little out of your mind. I can't quite explain it, but you'll know what I mean if it's ever happened to you. (laughs) That's just it. Tunnel vision happens to you. 
Tunnel vision is not that concentrated type of mental focus of attention, like when you choose to focus, say to meditate or to accomplish something like writing a paper or report or something. Nope. Tunnel vision is just not like that. It's just not an intellectual or logical activity where, you know, with discipline or skill, you shift your attention with purpose to where you want. Tunnel vision is different. It's something that just comes over you and it runs you and it's very specific for what it's looking for. It's programmed from a place deep within your heart and your gut. It's really raw. I guess it keeps you alive. It's kind of primitive, really. I think it's driven from a deep survival instinct about connection to protect those you need for your own survival. You know, not just your tribe or your herd so you can survive in safety, but to protect your loved one because you so need them so, so your heart won't break. It's a love survival instinct. Yeah, tunnel vision, it's about love survival. Something like that. At least that's what it was like for me. You know, I've been interviewing some of the amazing people behind the scenes. Well, the experience of tunnel vision came up completely spontaneously. And I thought you might want to hear some portions of two of those interviews. This is Sue Wonder. She is a special education teacher in Cape May County, New Jersey, and the mom of Robbie Wonder, who is a quadriplegic. Sue was a stranger to me. She's now a friend, and you'll hear why in a later episode. And here also is Mary Lou Healy. She's a middle school math teacher in Baltimore, Maryland, who lost her husband, Ed, a number of years ago. She was the Sunday school teacher for some of my kids a long time ago. Mary Lou reminded me I had written to her many years ago during her deep loss and we spent our interview time sharing stories. You'll meet Mary Lou again in a later episode as well. Yeah, I mean, when it's, when it's your child, you instantly, I mean, we have parents, we have siblings, we have significant others, but when it's your child, you, it's, a whole different, it's a whole different thing, and you immediately get tunnel vision. And as a mother, my son was 16, so as a mother for 16 years, you just fixed everything that ever went wrong in their lives. You were able to fix everything. You were able to, you know, help with the homework, run that lunch, lunch over to the school, give them money for something that broke. We could always fix it. And then all of a sudden you find yourself in a place where something happened and you are completely helpless. And being helpless as a mother is devastating. That's, that's exactly how it was for, for me. I don't Isn't think I've ever been more focused on anything. I can remember people coming to the hospital, close people to me, family members, and later, much later, them saying how they felt a little bit hurt because I didn't, they didn't feel acknowledged. They didn't feel like I even knew they were there. They didn't feel like I appreciated them being there, and it's because I had tunnel vision. Things that happened in those first few months, like people that did things for us and and people that sent things to us and even financial support. And he had to fill me in because tunnel vision. 
while I was focused on only Robbie. I think that's, that's such a wise uh, piece of information, Sue, that, that others who haven't experienced this kind of a crisis or trauma might potentially benefit from. And that is that the, the mother, or you know, could be the father, the dad, or whoever it is, it's probably going to be a parent, you know, but yeah. it, just the loved one, the loved one, especially when it's a child. But this tunnel vision that you speak of and that I experienced as well, it's really real. And you, you really are not aware. And you need a support system for that. Yeah. It's, it's really amazing. I, you remember being in tunnel vision? Yes. The machines and the numbers. Yes. and his body temperature and the pulse rate and the blood pressure and the, you know, the urine output. I mean, like yes. I was just focusing on yes. the numbers. Yes. I was focusing on the numbers and that was my tunnel vision. It was just like trying to, trying to grasp for something positive. And, and I just remember the one nurse saying that, all of these numbers were not, do not support life. That was the way she, she kept saying to me. And it, you know, if it was, one of it was the, his body temperature. So like every 10th of a degree, it was changing. Okay, well, maybe it's getting better. And it, it was just, it was just, it seemed like it, it was only, it was 48 hours that seemed like a year. You know, as I know you experienced this too, where, my kids will say, well, so-and-so was in the hospital room. Don't you remember, Mom? I don't remember everybody. You know, and sometimes I feel embarrassed when, when I talk to somebody and they're like, well, yeah, I was in the hospital room. Like, I'm so sorry. It kind of was a blur for me. <laughs> and, um, but, but it's true. It's like there's just way too many things happening that you just can't. Too much stimulation it, and input for the brain much. to take in. It really is. My tunnel vision then was to pray and find a place to pray. I had nothing else positive to lock onto, but I had God. I don't even remember Billy or my children. Heck, I, I think I probably told you that before, but I wasn't even aware of Pete. And he was the one who had really advocated for me. You know, I want to pause here and say this to you. I hope that you will never ever feel slighted or have your feelings hurt in any way if your friend or family member who is in shock or experiencing a trauma doesn't remember you or even remember your being with them or perhaps remember someone else but not you. Please don't take it personally. Neuroscience explains that when survival is threatened, the brain instinctively restricts the regular flow of all kinds of data to only what is deemed essential. And no matter how much the person in shock loves you, they might not see you because they literally cannot see you. And no matter how smart, capable, or loving the person who is in shock is, their brain has shut down to anything in the periphery, 
anything that doesn't match up with what they are searching for in tunnel vision. Tunnel vision? I don't know. I mean, it's like a, it's like a thoroughbred racehorse with blinders on, you know, like without a jockey going full speed ahead on instinct and adrenaline, all heart. I mean, maybe even other riders on their horses trying to flag you down or tell you you're disqualified or that the race is over or you can stop now, but you stay locked on. It's those blinders. You know, I think tunnel vision is hardwired. I mean, it's not cognitive. It's not chosen. It's just the way our bodies respond to a trauma of a loved one. Because it's as much of a trauma to us. I, I think it's primitive life and death stuff. But it's also higher ordered connection, disconnection stuff. And I think it goes for anyone experiencing a trauma or deep loss or threat of monumental harm of someone you love. It's not just a threat of harm to them. It's a threat to your soul. I think of it as your heart brain and your gut brain. It overrides your head brain in order to keep your soul alive. No matter how smart or loving you are or strong. I really do think we have three brains. Our brain in our head, our brain in our heart, and the brain in our gut. And all three are hardwired to keep us alive and hardwired for us to keep others alive because we need each other. I just love that. So I guess you could say there's a very good reason for tunnel vision. At the very least, we can be more compassionate with those in tunnel vision, strange as they may seem. You know, if you are ever with someone in shock, no matter how crazy they are, just respond with love. I was out wandering around the trauma unit and scanning the hospital hallways looking for a chapel. I remember a nurse telling me, a chapel? I'm not sure. I don't think we have one. How could that be? It just didn't make any sense. I mean, where do people go to pray? I needed a place where I could go to pray. There had to be a place. So I remember opening up my phone. I'll have others pray for me. 11.30 p.m. Text records show I texted a few more good friends. My son, Archer, has been in a swimming accident in the ocean, I texted. Please pray very hard. Collective prayer is very powerful. He's badly injured. Surgery now. We thank you. And I started copying and pasting this text over and over and sending it out to anyone who had been texting me. When I looked up and saw a young man walking towards me, I couldn't tell who it was, but I felt he was kind of familiar. He got closer and stretched out his hand and said, Hi, Mom. It's Dewey. We've been looking for you. There's a family waiting room. I've come to get you. He gently reached for my hand 
and led me down the hallway, holding my hand the entire time until we got to the family waiting room. So sweet and kind, my Dewey. What a love bug. What a good kid. Well, thank you for, um, for holding my hand in the hospital and coming to me <laughs> when I was wandering around. Well, someone had to come get you out of the desert. <laughs> my children are so kind to me. As Dewey opened the door, I scanned that room. Was there a place to sit and pray? There were a lot of people. It was rather utilitarian looking with a handful of vinyl upholstered wooden chairs and one small sofa. I remember so many tired and beleaguered people who I guess were waiting too. I locked on to that Hispanic family. I was so drawn to them for some reason, their whole family. There was also a couple, a man and a woman who looked passed out on the sofa. She with her disheveled long hair on his slumping shoulder. It was hard to get comfortable in a room like that. The upholstery, it was that hard vinyl-like stuff. I could see from the lines on their faces and the dangling of their heavy arms how exhausted they were. There were no more open seats. The room appeared designed to discourage resting, actually. Indeed, maybe designed to discourage being comfortable at all. I do remember thinking, is this the right place? This doesn't look like a family waiting room. I think about the stress in trauma units. It would be such a kind thing for families if there were spacious rooms with comfortable furniture and lots of comfy chairs and long sofas and many soft lap blankets and plastic wrapping like they have on international flights so people could rest, stretch out, have some peace and quiet, at least allow their bodies to relax, even if their minds were racing like mine was. Maybe some white noise so people could calm down and pray if they wanted. Supposedly, my family had all gathered in that family waiting room, but I do not remember seeing Billy or my children. I do remember a nurse telling all of us, though, as we stood together in the hall, that we were not allowed to stand as a group in that hallway, and that there was a family waiting room we could go to. I have this flash memory of Petey raising his eyebrows. Yeah, right. It was as if, though, I was watching him from afar. I remember a feeling like the hospital thought we were doing something wrong all being together. I vaguely recall that I think they all went to get something to eat, which sort of makes sense since there really was no other place on the trauma floor for Billy and my kids to go or sit or even stand. But I didn't want to leave. I wanted to be there. I wanted to be there to talk with the doctor when the surgery ended. I was scared. I was really scared. It was just all so surreal. What did a broken neck mean? I had to find a place to pray. Around the corner from the family waiting room was a short hall. So you know what I did? 
after they left, I went to the corner and I crouched on my knees. I realized I was so tired and I plastered my cheek against the wall, trying to make myself as small as I could, my nose in the corner where the two walls met at the right angle. And I closed my eyes, trying to create my own little space around me in my mind. I began my favorite prayer, the rosary. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I could hear each word in my mind. What did they mean? The Our Father all my life had given me such comfort, and now I wondered, what do those words mean? Thy will be done. What is your will, Lord? Archer's going to be all right, right? Please tell me, please tell me he'll be all right. It felt fuzzy again. I began, Hail Mary, full of grace. Oh, sweet Mary, please be with us tonight, please. I don't know how much time elapsed, a rosary's worth, but I felt God. I opened my eyes, and I had a flicker of an idea that what I needed to do was to try to live in alignment with God's plan for Archer. I slowly got myself up out of that corner, and I remember I felt very clear about that, but it was just all so surreal. I knew God was merciful. I had witnessed God's mercy many times on my trips to Lourdes with the Order of Malta, seeing the sick and the dying brought on stretchers from around the world, many gnarled and deformed bodies in pilgrimage to the underground waters in Lourdes for miracles. And they were joyful just to have made the trip. Oh, that memory flooded me. That night, that moment, all I really knew is I wanted to feel God's mercy on our family and be shown his plan to show me the way through this. As I stood there at the end of the hallway, there was a certain calm because I realized there was a plan. 12.04 a.m., I texted Billy. We will do whatever it takes to follow God's plan, whatever it is. It was incredibly comforting to me to believe there was a plan. There was a plan in this somewhere. And I did believe that. I stood in the hallway in that corner and I closed my eyes. Even when we do something really stupid or someone does something really bad or hurtful to us, or something bad just happens. It's life. There's always a way through. I mean, I've seen it many times. Maybe if you've had something really terrible happen to you and you might not think there's a way through, 
and then and then there is i mean have you experienced that like when something really bad happens say a divorce or an employment dispute or partnership breakup or maybe a really bad conflict with family members and you're slogging through it it's painful and it's messy and you think you're not going to be okay or you're scared you know you're going to lose or not have enough or get the short end of the stick or something or someone's going to get the better of you or take advantage of you or harm you i mean i know it's real but there's always a way through through dialogue and it usually includes some uncomfortable conversation but that's part of the way through i've dedicated my career to this work being a transformative mediator i believe in breakthroughs i have to believe to stay in the heat with people their heat or their storm so they can experience each other's humanity and momentary reconnection even when they are divorcing going separate ways or never to see each other again and move forward with their lives without the adversarial litigation and without the lingering bitterness and they do tonight for me i couldn't even allow my mind for one moment for one second the thought that one of my children was seriously injured in such a way that we might separate or fall apart please god show me the plan for my family and in my mind the plan was we'd pray archer would have a successful surgery we'd be told what to do we'd do it and he'd be okay we'd get him back to how he was before right god i stood there with my eyes closed and i had the thought i need a lot of people praying with me that archer would be okay 12:15 p.m. i opened my phone and sent out another text to more friends please pray very hard my son archer has been in a bad swimming accident in cape may he's in surgery please say a prayer for us and please ask anyone you know to say a prayer for us a nurse passed and saw me standing in the corner ma'am are you all right there's a family waiting room around the corner she didn't understand i needed time by myself in a chapel i must have then wandered to the other side of the trauma unit still looking for a chapel i was really aware of how much i needed my family billy my children my siblings billy's siblings 12:30 p.m. text records show i sent another text to billy and my children and siblings and in-laws written as if i did not know they were even there tunnel vision i said archer is badly injured we need all your prayers there could be a miracle i started walking i turned a corner you won't believe what happened i met an angel well i met a woman in one of the patient rooms see the layout of the trauma unit it's like a big rectangular donut 
all the nurses, desks, computers, offices, and medical staff are in the rectangular center. And the hospital rooms with the patients are all along the outside in two long hallways and two short ones at each end. Linoleum floors, brightly lit corridors, no obstructions in the hallways. And there is this huge clock hanging from the ceiling in the middle of the long hallway, like a huge classroom clock. You, you know, you know the kind I mean. And in that night, late night, I spotted one nurse sitting at a desk and I asked her about the chapel. It was similar. Chapel, she said, I don't think we have one. I passed hospital room after hospital room. It was much quieter in this corridor, and the curtains on many of the rooms were drawn halfway. But a number of the rooms were empty. I was wondering if maybe there might be a room I could duck into to sit quietly and pray. I could see some of the patients in the beds. Oh, they looked so eerie under the bluish hospital lights. And, and there was no one else with them. Where were their families? How could anyone leave them by themselves in a place like this? As I walked, I passed a room with the curtain open. A woman was sitting in a metal chair. She looked up as I passed. I nodded to her and said, Hello. She said, Hi. I sort of peered into her room a little and said, Do you know if there's a chapel around here? She didn't say anything. So I said, Are you waiting on surgery too? And she snapped, Yep, and it's been a while. Her voice was grovelly, like a cigarette voice. I could see she was by herself. So I said, I'm sorry to bother you. I'm looking for a quiet place to pray. It's no problem, she replied in her raspy voice as she eyed me. She then told me, yeah, I'm waiting for my friend. I think that was the relationship. She told me he was pretty messed up. I told her we were waiting on surgery too, my son, and I hoped not too messed up. And she said, motorcycle accident? I said, no, a swimming accident. How about your friend? She told me he was one of the construction workers on the large Atlantic City Bridge project, working up high when a crane dropped some steel or a concrete median or something like that, and it fell. And he fell, crushing his back and lower body. Oh, my Lord. I was horrified. That poor man, I said. I will pray for him. Oh, she said. Don't bother. There's no way he'll make it. And if he does, why would he want to live a life like that? I was stunned. Why do you say that? He might. She looked right at me and said, Look, I play the table with him at the casino. 
He's got no family. He's got nothing to live for after something like this. He had no family. I felt my heart drop. I looked at her and I felt this rush of love for her, for being there for him. I said, so you'll be his family. And in her tough voice, she said, I guess, at least for tonight. Oh, thank you for doing that for him, I said. Everyone needs a family. I then told her about my family. I told her I had five children and how one of my children, Archer, who had just turned 17, had broken his neck in a swimming accident in the ocean in Cape May, and that we were from Baltimore. I remember then telling her I better go as I had a feeling he'd be getting out of surgery soon. I stepped back into the hallway. Hang on, don't go anywhere, I heard her say. I was a bit startled. She began digging around in her big black handbag on her lap. She drew a ballpoint pen out and put it between her teeth. And then she used both hands to rummage deep down in that big purse. She dug out an old piece of fancy wrapped candy that looked like it had been at the bottom of that bag for a while. She unwrapped it and I watched her flatten the white inside part of the wrapper and write down a bunch of numbers. She stretched out her hand to me and said, here, call Caesars, tell him you need a room, give him those numbers. Call Caesars, I asked. Yeah, you know, Caesars Casino, next door to here. You probably parked in their garage. Give him that number. Stay as many nights as you need. Really? I have more points than I'll ever use. What's your name again? Louise. I'll let him know. She then said, good luck to your family. Hey, if it makes you feel any better, I'll say a prayer for your son. I hope he makes it. It struck me when she said that. But what does she mean? I hope he makes it. Of course he's going to make it. Why'd she even say that? It's her friend who had serious stuff. Of course Archer would make it. I glanced down the hallway at the big clock. 1.10 a.m. It was just all so surreal. I looked again at that little worn candy wrapper with those numbers on it. It was generous. And she said she'd say a prayer for Archer. I marveled at how many good people there were in the world. It was just so kind, this stranger. I never did find a chapel. But in this woman, I feel like I met an angel. I rounded the corner and a young doctor approached me. Mrs. Semft? Yes. I'm Chris Radcliffe. I just finished the surgery on your son. He's in recovery. I just spoke with your husband. He began to give me a medical rundown of something posterior. And I said, no, wait, just, can you wait a minute? Is he all right? 
is Archer all right? He's in recovery. It'll be about an hour. But is Archer all right? Mrs. Semft, your son was badly injured. He is a quadriplegic. A what? A quadriplegic. <laughs> what, what does that mean? He is paralyzed and won't have the use of his arms or legs. Oh, oh my God. Oh my God. I guess it was just like, with Archer, we didn't know, I, I guess, like the seriousness of it. Like, not we knew seriousness, but we didn't know the all the implications that came with that, you know? Like, yep. we didn't know about his pneumonia. We didn't know about, like, yep. what it would do to his heart or his lungs or his not being able to, like, eat, not wanting to eat. We didn't know any of that. But at that point in time, on that first night, it was, I don't know, it was when it almost made it more real for me when, like, you were incapacitated by that catastrophe, I guess. It made it, it, made it more real for Emotion, you. yeah. No, it just, it was just the seriousness of it all. Here is a portion of an interview I will post later with neck surgeon Chris Radcliffe of the Rothman Institute in Philadelphia. So my goal that night was to set expectations that this is going to be a long process, that he's not going to just like walk out of the hospital. That because I because I knew just from the from the severity of the injury that this wasn't going to be something that just kind of turned around and, and and to give you guys a sense that life was going to profoundly change. Life can change in the blink of an eye. Maybe you have a tunnel vision story of when something catastrophic happened to one of your loved ones. I'd like to hear what it was like for you. Did you experience that primitive love survival? Or maybe you have comments about tunnel vision or a story of how others responded with love or ways they responded that were not helpful. Write me at blink of an eye at funnelradio.com. Wouldn't it be amazing if all trauma units at hospitals designed themselves for healing, which means families together and had large, comfortable family waiting rooms with blankets and soft furniture and healthy snacks and water? And wouldn't it promote emotional healing if every hospital had a chapel clearly marked for all people of any faith? I mean, it would be such a natural collaboration for pharmaceutical companies to fund such waiting rooms and chapels and hospitals. They reap so much financial benefit it would be the start of a fair give back. It would reduce so much suffering on the front end, wouldn't it? It might not change the outcome of serious injuries, but it sure could lessen the long-term effects of trauma 
and disconnection because we would deal with it differently on the front end in so many different ways with care and comfort and love. Oh, that would, that would be a gift to society. Oh, let us be grateful for our ability to love and to know we are loved and have the capacity to respond to others with love. And let's send a positive intention to all those suffering today around the world and maybe in your own family from the effects of old trauma or from deep loss who are feeling disconnected and maybe even desperate and alone. Send them a prayer or a thought, this thought, you are never alone and let us hope for everything. Life is so precious. Sending love. Hope for everything. Obtain everything. You've been listening to Blink of an Eye. We ask that you share this with anyone who may need inspiration, a lift, or who may relate. Never miss an episode. Please subscribe via email on our site blinkofaneyepodcast.com on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. If you have a story to share, please contact Louise Phipps Sams directly blinkofaneye at funnelradio.com